Hello there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast broadcasting from our secret bunker in beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Today's a big day for us, since it's the final interview of our seven-part Congressional Contender series. We first thought up this series way back in November, and we're already interviewing candidates by December. I gotta say, it's been a ton of work, but also a lot of fun. Along the way, Rachel actually found her candidate and volunteered. We hope that you have as well, because that's exactly what we were hoping this series would do. We felt that the coverage of the candidates early on in the primary process was sparse, if it was there at all. This was especially troubling for us, because far too often, good candidates fail to get the traction they deserve. This isn't because of the apathy of voters, but of vested interests, who are often the only people interested that early on into a campaign. More often than not, candidates are forced to field questions about their viability, their practicality, and they're poked and prodded not on the issues, but on their strategies and fundraising, where they were born, what luminaries have already lined up behind them before they've even introduced themselves to the voters. What point is there in dismissing someone due to fundraising when that fundraising is occurring before they've even had a chance to discuss their issues openly or connect with voters? The cart is oftentimes placed before the horse. Sadly, we already had two candidates leave the race, Boyd Melson and Mike DeSillis. But we were proud to give them a platform to voice their issues. Even the very name of the series, Congressional Contenders, was a nod to Boyd particularly. We hope that you, the listeners, will continue to voice Mike and Boyd's ideas and issues throughout this campaign and race. Being a candidate is a tough job. It requires a lot of sacrifice right out of the gate. If progressivism is going to have any effect on the electoral system that often ignores it, we need to carry those voices forward for everyone with the courage to run on a progressive platform. But we shouldn't start wrapping up just yet. We have one more candidate to bring you in the race to become the Democratic nominee for our House of Representatives. Today, our two senior correspondents, Eric and Mary, took their long-awaited turn at the mic to talk with Radhakrishna Mohan. So let's start off. Thank you, Mohan, for joining us. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to join you. Joining us today is Mary, the infamous Radio Free Bay Ridge correspondent from, uh, oh, the Zavarian debate. I like the infamous, Mary. I'm going to have that printed on my business card. So I figured we would start out just introducing yourself, um, how you got into politics. Again, my name is Radha Krishna Mohan. I go by Mohan. And how I got introduced into politics is through the union I represent. Which uh, union is that? New York State Public Employees Federation. I'm part of that for more than 20 years now. That union activities exposed me to a lot of political candidates and also elected officials. You know, we need to be in touch with them all the time because uh, whatever we do, something to be passed on the legislature. That's how I used to get in touch with them. For the last 10 years, I've been a, a Democratic County member of the Staten Island. And I used to do a lot of uh, activities, uh, like I used to go and collect the petitions for the elected who I was running for any office. And then I also used to do a lot of fundraising for them. I used to support those candidates who I was running on a Democratic ticket. That's what I used to do. Then after 10 years, now I see the country is shifting towards a different direction. So I thought as a unionist, can I sit on the sidelines and watch or support somebody who's going to do the job for us? Why not I go and do it myself? And the, this is a big time for me 
to be politically active because uh, Janice was has asked me cases coming up uh, in the Supreme Court, which is going to do a great harm if it goes through for all the unions. In the U.S., we have union history of for about 230 years. Can you, uh, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about Janice Viacme? Janice Rogers asked me is a case that person, uh, Janice, uh, she, uh, they don't want to pay the union dues, and still they want the union representation. The union runs on union dues. Without union dues, unions' activities will be very much limited or it could be eliminated. So we need money. We need money to organize, to provide the benefits, to represent the members, and provide them the health insurance. We provide them the attorneys to represent them, benefits. Without the union dues, the unions are pretty much will be eliminated, as simple as that. So this is a big thing for unions. That's why I wanted to step out and do it myself instead of going and supporting some other candidate. That's uh, interesting for me to think about because I think about uh, when I taught as an ESL teacher, my uh, workplace was unionizing, and we go from not being union workers, not having to pay dues, and now we've got a union, but now we've got to pay dues. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Before the union, we didn't have any paid vacation days. And I looked at the dues, and it's like, I'm getting more pay in paid vacation than my union dues are, plus I'm getting everything that you've just listed. I'm really worried about it. <laughs> yeah, no, the downside of that is if you don't pay the union dues, you're kind of becoming a right-to-work state. In those states, people don't have any rights. They are at the mercy of the government or any company they work for. Now, just imagine, I'm paying $300 as my union dues. If I don't pay that, I will not get the health insurance. I will not get the paid vacation. They can reduce it. And they can also reduce the benefits. And you will be working for 10 years without a contract. You cannot question them. They will just keep you where they want you to. When you're speaking about unions, you always bring it back to the members, fighting for the members, front line for the members. For you, when you first got started in the union, did you have a lot of contact with kind of the union leaders? Or is that something that you brought once you kind of became more more of a union person, like later into your membership? That's a, that's a very great question for me, because back in India, I was working for another state, one of the state government. Uh, I started in the state job for about a year. Then we heard that we lost the contract. We thought, how did we lose the contract? Why we, we lost the contract? We wanted to find out. Then we went and visited the union office. And the union office was upside down in doldrums. And we thought, if these people are running the union like this, no doubt we lost the contract because they don't know how to run the union. So we stepped forward. We wanted to take over the union. So 10 of us went out. We did our own campaign, put our own money, whatever we had, and then put the posters all over the building. We elected one of our own member who is an MS in English literature. He's a very good speaker. We made him president. She spoke nicely. We went all around the place to start campaigning. We won that. We won in a thumping majority. And uh, we call ourselves the team. And we held the union for the last 30 years. Only last week, I addressed the new team, the members who followed us. And they say, hey, here I am. I started the union. I'm in U.S. I'm doing the same thing. I'm not doing anything different. So that is the, the spark I had in me. When you see something, do something or say something. That's what we did. 
when I came here, I didn't jump in the union because first I had to stabilize myself. After, I think, uh, three, four years into the job, by the time I finished my computer degree and all, then I started as a shop steward in the Public Employees Federation. That's how I started. So that is my introduction into union. What are some issues that intersect with the unions in every state in this country, that state levels, national levels? Uh, what issues do you look for in your union work? Each union has their own agenda, but we all uh, come together on one common agenda. It's a $15 minimum wage and health insurance for all the American people. Again, uh, all the benefits. And again, we have the Social Security Medicare attack. We're also looking into organizing the Service Employees International Union. That is the biggest union with three or four million members in it. And the AFL-CAO, the second largest these are the big unions who have a lot of resources out there, and they can do anything they want. These are the unions I want to work with. I had been to all the SEIU conferences every four years. I had been to all the three conventions, one in Puerto Rico, one in Colorado, one in Michigan. There I learned a lot because uh, not only union members come and participate in this convention, people from Australia, Africa, England, they all come and participate. The SEIU is international. And they go out and promote unionism, organizing in other countries. And that's what we had to do. At the peak of unionism, we had 35%. Now it has come down to 10%. And all the service and other big unions, the biggest task they have, get more people into union. Without the union, the working class and middle class will be hard hit. So that's why all the unions should work together, make unions stronger. And that's what we should do. How do you see that? fight playing out. If you go to Washington, do you see just the unions coming or do you see grassroots activism coming? If there is corporate interest against them, how do you negotiate that fight? So once if I'm in the Capitol Hill, if I get the opportunity, we see what goes on there. Who are the lobbies? Who are the special interests? What are they doing? I'm going to be a watchdog and I can share it with our fellow union members, with my own union, which I represented. And then I'd say, hey, this special interest lobbyist group is doing this, especially with this prescription drug pricing and all other things. And they're controlling the health insurance industry. So we need to see what lobby is doing what. And then we got to bring it out and create awareness for what they're doing. And then we had to put all the unions to put fire under their feet. Wherever they are, we will be after them. We like to expose them. That's what I want to do. And I have the very good union backups. I can really get on top of that. And that will save prescription drug pricing. We can bring it down. We can make sure that the health insurance industry doesn't play with the pricing and their coverage. All that. We need to address that. And even any meetings I go in the community and wherever I go, I'm going to talk about the unionism, organizing, and how important it is. Without the union, the middle class and working class, nobody will take care of them. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the spokesperson as a congressman. When the government make a policy decision, unless they hear from the unions, they don't know what they're doing. That's what I do in my work also. We have quarterly meeting with my management. And I tell them, if I don't come and expose what is going on here, you will not know. You think you pass on some policy, you think everything is working good. But unless I come and tell you there's something wrong, something you need to make adjustments, 
I'm working with you so together we can make it better. That's how I introduced the telecommuting in my office because telecommuting is very important. And uh, now one to two days, people can work from home. I did it as a pilot project uh, for one year. Now the management, after I stepped down as a president, and now they are again uh, putting in abeyance for that. So that is what they do. You have to be on top of them. We need to be a watchdog. Otherwise, they always go back to their whatever they do. So that's one thing I did. And also for the women, female employees, male employees in the New York State, we have eight hours of for medical screening. For the female employees, they get only four hours. There's a discrepancy. So what I did is I passed a resolution in our convention four years ago, uh, I think 2010. I brought in a resolution. I worked hard. I worked with other women caucus. I put in a resolution, and that was passed by my uh, the convention. If the New York State legislature passes it, all female employees in the New York State government, they get four more additional cancer screening. So this is what I did. When I see something, you can do something. I see what is lacking here, what can be done better to make it better. And that is what I wanted to do at the national level. Being a congressman, you have a very good reach to all the unions. Then they will come and talk to you. And that is what I want to use and then make it as a platform to support and uh, create awareness for organizing and uh, you know, get the unions, get back to where it was before. And we need to organize a lot. There's a lot of professions are not unionized. Take a, even the Uber, <laughs> you take for an example, right? And then uh, there are food vendors out on the street, New York City. Mm-hmm. And these, these people are not organized. They don't nobody to represent them, like farm workers. And make sure that get the basic benefits. That is the purpose of the union. Give them basic benefits. I was wondering, how did you find out about the discrepancy between men's time off and women's time off? No, when I, I, was a, I was a president for 2,000 members in my division, PEF Division 240. It's a statewide. And my members are all over the place, uh, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, White Plains, Suffolk. One of the one meetings I went, White Plains, uh, they came and told me that there's a discrepancy that is we are only getting white men, the male employees are getting four, eight. When somebody comes and tells me, I need to address that. So I just started looking into that. Then I saw that, okay, this is how we are going to do that. Only thing I can make it work is, I had to prove that so many people are signing up and asking them to address this issue. So I got the sign, collected all the signatures. First, I started doing it. Then Women Caucus wanted to come and join me. Okay, I said, God, more people, the better. Uh, again, we spoke at the convention, the importance of getting the female employees also, same for us, the men folks are getting. That's how we got it rolling. Because I used to visit all my offices, all the district offices. I go to Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, at least uh, once in a year or once in six months, I used to go and talk to the members. That's how I used to do. That's how in White Plains office, they came and complained about this. And So we talked a little while back about corporate interests and the pharmaceuticals in particular is what you brought up. This is something that's kind of hot right now when people are talking about the opioid crisis, which of course, they talk about the crisis itself, but then, of course, do we talk about the doctors next or the pharmaceutical companies next? I wondered if you had some thoughts on kind of addressing this for Staten Island and South Brooklyn. Yes, uh, opioid is on my big list. I don't want anybody to die, especially on the drug overdose. It affects everybody, every family. They go through that. 
And we cannot allow that in our society. That is the worst thing we can do, letting people to die without taking care of them. I was a part of the police council, and we hear about this all the time. But one of the things more serious about this I heard, we don't have enough facilities to take care of those who are affected by this drug overdose. And that is the first thing I wanted to do. First, you need to take care of the people. First, get them on their feet. Give them all facilities. And then we need to go do whatever we can to cut the supply of the drugs into the community. And the new drug law, the one implemented now, they can go who committed overdose when they're in the hospital, and they can get the information where they got this supply of the drugs, and they can go after these uh, suppliers of the drug. The law can follow up with them and stop them, and, uh, and that is a big step as far as the New York City is concerned. And now we need to go after the pharmaceutical industries who is pumping in a lot of these uh, painkillers into the community. We need to go after that. And New York City mayor, he has done the right thing, is started suing them. Then they will come to realize that this is not worth for their money to put more painkillers into the community. That's another way of looking at it. Then we need to get all the law enforcement together. We need to create a kind of network among the FBI, CIA, local police, community, and whoever. We need to put all the resources together. They will know exactly what drug comes in, where it comes from, who is the supplier. They have all the information. We All we have to do is to connect the dots. Once if we have that good picture, I think we can eradicate these opioid uh, issues. Uh, I'm going to coordinate. I'm going to get in more money from Capitol Hill to take care of these people who are going through this drug overdose. And then I would like to have a lot of town hall meetings. And this is where I'm going to get the feedback from the community uh, firsthand. That's what we do as a labor union, guys. <laughs> we need to understand the problem first before we get the resources, which I'll be coordinating with the DA's office, the mayor's office, and the local elected officials. I want to create a forum where we can all uh, think tank and then formulate a plan and see how, where we stand, how much resources we need, whether the state and city can afford that the resources. If they can't, then I can go to the Senate Appropriation Committee appeal to them, and I cannot just like that go to Washington and say, give me $1 billion to address the problem. No, I got to get all the input. I have to get a clear roadmap where we stand, how much we need, and then how we are going to address that. When you worked with the Community Council for, I believe it's the 121 and the 122 precinct in Staten Island, have you ever talked to people in those communities about the opioid epidemic or the police officers there? No, actually, I don't talk in those community council meetings. We are the license between the police and the community. We is the council. We are just there to take care of the community interest. We also do some programs like a national night out, and we invite all the communities there. We invite whichever the charities and other organizations to come and join us. And the Staten Island is one of the best events. I've been there going for the last 12 years. We give them a lot of free food and all that. And the police will full force with all the children will come and enjoy. We, we have some recreational games for them. Uh, this brings community and police together. Normally, police means people will shy away and all that. Here we are breaking that ice. Besides that, we do some children's program, another thing with the council. But as I said, uh, we cannot take over the council. That is between the commander of the precinct and the community. They come with the issues and we are making that meeting to happen. 
we invite speakers to talk about this, engage the community, what is going on. So they will explain better what they're doing, how they need the support of the community. That's how it is done. So uh, you're in Staten Island right now still, Yeah, right? yeah. I've been in Staten Island for 30, almost 30 years now. Where is it in Staten Island? I live in, in uh, Mid-Island. Like uh, I live by Willowbrook, mm. close to Susan Wagner High School. Both my son graduated from that school. The good school district I wanted to move in naturally as a parent. Is there anything that strikes you about Staten Island? You know, you've been there 30 years. It's, what's changed so much that you've noticed? The problem with the most is overdevelopment. <laughs> That's what I've noticed because when I moved in, it was like a pristine beauty and uh, the developments are now Contractors are all over the place, and they're converting small places into multi-houses. And uh, I'm also the community board member in Staten Island. I go to the land use committee's meeting. We ask questions. We don't allow people to go and do a construction anywhere they want. We stop it if we feel that it is not good for the community. That is one of the biggest changes I am looking at. And then the traffic congestion. They put a lot of traffic lights now. That's they have to control the traffic. That's why they're putting more traffic lights. That's one of the things I wanted to address. What are the resources I can bring and the infrastructure? I commute from New Staten Island to New York City every day for the last 27 years, and I know the, the traffic was. I would like to create more ferry service that will cut down some traffic on the road. And then telecommuting program, the government should support that. Why people have to get into the city to go to work and when you can do some of the work from home. And then the overdevelopment, we need to cut it. At least keep a strict monitoring on that because you have to keep the beauty and it's one of the best boroughs. Did I read on your website that you were interested in subsidies to reduce tolls on the bridges to Staten Island? Yes. Uh, when I moved to Staten Island, the toll was $5. Now... It's $18. I cannot come out of Staten Island. I had to think twice to go back. And uh, not only Staten Island, I had to come and again pay in the New York City, the double tolls. If I come and go, it cost me $36, which is uh, for a middle-class guy like me, a union worker, it's a lot of money. And that is not fair. The bridge tolls can be reduced with a federal subsidy. Whatever we can make it affordable for the Staten Islanders to go in and out of Staten Island. Otherwise, I cannot move freely as I would like to. And not only that, it affects the businesses also. A lot of businesses are shying away just because of these tolls. Companies have to think twice before they start thinking about Staten Island. We cannot get anybody to open up any business. And that's one thing we want to give subsidies for the businesses who wants to open some businesses in Staten Island. That's one of the things I wanted to do. I would like to create a Staten Island as an internet and IT hub. Why I'm thinking in that? I'm an IT specialist. New York City is full of those industries, right? And then I want to create a, the disaster recovery centers, and they can have an extended office in Staten Island. This will attract more businesses into Staten Island. This way we can cut down the job being sold overseas. Our jobs are being sent out of our country. I want to bring those jobs back in Staten Island especially the IT jobs. We have land. That's one of the best resources we have in Staten Island, the land. So we use that, convert the South Shore, a big IT hub, create more jobs. We want to attract industries with a federal subsidy, with a toll subsidy. These are the subsidies we have to make them attract to come in. If possible, tax some tax subsidies also, but not for corporates to give more money into their pockets. 
but make them to do that business here in Staten Island and give them subsidy on the basis of their performance. The corporate subsidy should be given on a conditional basis. You prove yourself. Now, people think that, oh, giving more money to the corporation, they're going to develop the business, they're going to give more job opportunities. No. Put a conditional offer. Then you will see, okay, how much they're getting. If you're not getting it, you're not going to get the subsidy. Subsidy is given on the basis of what you are going to do, not that you are entitled for it. So our neighborhood was recently added to the fiber optic network, and when we got it, it was great. And Dan was even thinking maybe he would be able to telecommute once in a while to work uh, with this faster internet service. How's the internet service on Staten Island? Is there a lot of fiber I optic? I think uh, and- Staten Island is pretty much um, covered with the fiber optics because I got it two, three years back. So, yes, t- telecommuting, you need that. I work a lot of times after 7 o'clock to do all of our infrastructure maintenance. So I stay until 11 in the night, and I use my phone. I use the hotspot, and not even my home uh, fiber optics. I use my telephone, use that hotspot to connect to my office, and then how I work. So it is pretty good. I never even seen a single drop. We are talking about the cloud now. But you need to have high-speed access for that. So you have to have both in place. That's what I come in as an IT specialist. I'm not talking about only Staten Island we can improve the resources in Brooklyn because Brooklyn has a very nice hub by the sea line and uh, you have to make use of that. And uh, these uh, industries, these shore, shore, no bay shore and whatever is on the shores, that you have to exploit that. You have very good resources on that. We can do that. And again, the transportation. And Brooklyn has got the same problem like Staten Island. Uh, For four or five years, there's a bill in the state legislature to improve the transportation and uh, expand and modernize, which is not being discussed. So that is one of the biggest bills sitting on the state legislature. They're not looking into that. We have to open up Brooklyn and Staten Island for more businesses to come in. And we can do that. U.S. can capture a lot of business. The trade deficit is coming. I just want to talk about the trade deficit here. With a new budget, $4.4 trillion. It's coming with the $7.1 trillion of deficit. That is not good because it's conveniently passed on to our future generations. You don't have to be a rocket scientist for that, right? If you create a $7.1 trillion deficit when the economy is good, just imagine when the economy goes down, that we'll never ever recover from that deficit. Now, we are looking at our export is $2.2 billion. Our import is $2.7 billion. So we are right there, we have a deficit, right? Now you take uh, South Africa, Middle East, you see the presence of Russia and China in a big way. They're developing all the infrastructure. We are spending more money and resources in the war and other things, but we are not spending our resources into trades. But other countries are there, they're not doing as much as the leadership role that U.S. does. Why are we not getting the benefits out of that? So I think... We need to concentrate to take the international trade outside. Now, we don't have to look inside. We have to look outside. That's how we have to international trade. We need to improve that. And we have all the facilities, resources, everything under your fingertips. We are not using it. That's mind-boggling for me. How we can sit here not using the international resources, what we have. I can walk in in any country. I can say, I can do this. I can do that. I can create a business right there because we can get the resources there. Using the local population, we can tell them, okay, we can reuse your local population. We can give you the jobs here, but I can give you the business, you know. You can do that. We need to 
get some kind of a team for the international trade. I don't know whether it exists in Washington. They are looking into that. But we need to create a, a committee on international trade. We can't be sitting on this $500 billion deficit all the time. It's bad. That sounds like it would take a large increase in American manufacturing. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, not only manufacturing. You can also have other, uh, we can give service uh, business also. We can do a lot. See, that's the balance we have to strike. What resources we have, how we can improve it. Manufacturing industry alone can help. No, it can add. We have strength on the service industries. We have a lot of consultants. We have the high tech. <laughs> this is the birthplace of high tech industries. So we can give consultants, open up consultancy, open up marketing consultants. We can do a lot. We got to look in all perspective. I am not going to look into manufacturing industries alone. We got to look out in every sense, every possibility we have to look at it. Well, uh, it gets no more local uh, in local jobs than tourism. Uh, Staten Island has some institutions that are currently existing, some that will exist in the future. I want to know if you want to talk about tourism. Yes, uh, we are going to get the big wheel soon in Staten Island. And the big wheel is going to get the thousands of tourists into Staten Island. And we need to use that tourism activities to improve the economy in Staten Island. The best thing we can do is we can convert that into tourism tour. A tour can be conducted within Staten Island, connecting all the historical places, one of the legacies we have. This Alistair House, and then Snug Harbor, Richmond Historic Town, and then Tibetan Museum. And then uh, comes here, the Staten Island Cricket Club. It's uh, one of the oldest cricket clubs in the U.S. Since 1876, they've been playing cricket continuously. And that is drawing every year cricketers from Australia, New Zealand, and this year team came from South Africa. And the world international renowned players played on the ground. And that is one of the, like a mecca, all the other countries, Australia, New Zealand, England, South Africa, Pakistan, Southeast India, all these countries would like to come and visit this. Once if you say this is the oldest cricket club, and they would like to come and see that. So that's how we need to connect the tour within the Staten Island, connecting all these historical centers plus these uh, Staten Island Cricket Club. And you can really draw a lot of tourists. And uh, not only they come and visit the Big Wheel, they will go around the Staten Island that way they can spend more money. The money we can get out of the tourists to make them to stay one or two days in Staten Island. That's how we get the money and make them to go around. And then we can create some recreational facilities for them to go and buy in shopping malls and stuff like that. They'll enjoy it. Uh, instead of making this a forgotten borough, we can make it as a most sought after borough. That's what I wanted to do. I want to make Staten Island more visible out in the world. When I went to the Alice Austin Museum, I had a hard time getting there from Bay Ridge. Uh, I think I must have taken like three buses and then I still had to walk quite a ways. Uh, do you have any plans for making Staten Island more accessible? Like I said, the best way to do that is the ferry service. That's what I wanted to concentrate on. And that's why you need to get some federal funding. When you stand from the Alice Austin House, you see the Manhattan. Only thing is in between you and the Manhattan is the water. <laughs> So you can build a direct line from Alistair's to So that's how easy. But ferry service is the best answer for that. And I'm also the board member of the Alistair's house. How I became the member? Because I was fighting for their parking facilities in the community board. For some reason, community board is not willing to provide that. 
So I went and visited the place and I wanted to see for myself why community board is not in favor of giving that parking facilities. That's the most basic facilities you can give for any uh, in a historical place like that. I wanted to clarify, uh, even though I had to take three buses, it was worth the trip. It's right on the water, great views. It's a really interesting historical little gem in Staten Island. We should go on a Radio Free Bay Ridge field trip. <laughs> Thank you. No, Alice, uh, Alice uh, Austin, uh, she has taken wonderful pictures. In fact, I can dig out the old the cricket pictures in 1876. That would be awesome. Right. It's very awesome. It's New York. <laughs> we got into New York Times. They have all these archives. That's where we got the pictures. Oh, my goodness. You have to see how the Staten Island looked like those days and mm. uh, and how cricket was played those days. <laughs> but for Alice Austin, we wouldn't have seen that. We, I don't even have a clue. That's one of the wonderful things she did. And we can see how the, the community was in 1876, uh, how the game was played, tennis. This is where the Davis Cup played, the first time in the U.S. So the, that's a very historical place, not only for cricket, for the Davis Cup also, mm. <laughs> tennis. We need to let the people know. Even the same block they are living in, they don't know that. <laughs> that makes me feel better because I had no clue. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, I, I've i tried watching cricket. I don't quite get it. I'm not quite there, but. Uh, we come and play in Brooklyn. In the, oh, really? Yeah. Brooklyn, uh, you go by the Bell Parkway. Mm. You see the ground and uh, Queens. So there's a lot of cricket grounds are here. Mm. We're talking about these uh, established cultural institutions. You're on the board for one of them. And essentially, the most recent tax proposal was to give the NEA and NEH uh, closing money, essentially, enough money to shut down in time for the next fiscal year. Is arts funding, particularly for your museum, is that something that you want to continue work with on the national level? Yes. um, I'm a big fan of arts. In India, I was a tourism information officer, and I represented two states. In fact, I did my diploma in tourism, too, because we cover a lot of art and other part of the that goes with the tourism. In one of the town hall meetings, uh, New York City Mayor de Blasio, he had, I was asking that question, are you going to fund New York City Arts and Museum here? Because we need some funding here. We have legacies in Staten Island. What are you going to do? Whether you're going to increase the funding? Because we need the funding. Unless we have the funding, we have a great snug harbor, beautiful place, and where the children are getting a lot of learning and organizing a lot of other activities there. And we need to preserve that. These places reflect the culture of the community. And we need it badly in Staten Island. And art has to be a part of any community. So like I said, you cannot go get the tourists around if you don't keep this place the way you should, right? For that, you need to put some money in in these projects and make these facilities look better. So I'll be really working for that also, because that is also part of your economy. thought I read somewhere that you were talking about opening an office in Bay Ridge. Is that still the plan? Yes, uh, I'm still looking for a place in Bay Ridge. Uh, I'll be soon find a place, uh, both in Staten Island and Bay Ridge. We're happy to have you. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) I just want to thank you again for coming to talk to us, uh, and it was great hearing from you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here, and really I enjoyed talking to you and on the radio. I really look forward for another visit if you allow me to come. (laughs) During the closing times, I will be more hot with more news for you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again, Mohan, for sitting down and taking the time to talk with us. It was great to have you. 
Now that you've heard from Mohan, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the other candidates in the race, even Boyd and DeSolis. Think about what you've heard and what you didn't hear. We gave each candidate a platform and the time to talk about their issues, their beliefs, and their particular brand of progressivism. Does it line up with yours? If so, petitioning begins soon. I mean like a few days soon, March 6th soon. Many candidates are already gearing up to canvas homes in the district, including here in Bay Ridge. If you're a registered Democrat, especially if you voted in a previous primary, you can expect each of our candidates to knock on your door and ask you to sign a petition. Each candidate needs enough signatures to get them on the primary ballot. But you can only sign once, and if you sign multiple petitions, only the first signature counts. So in some ways, petitioning is also a race. It's a show of force to see who is mobilizing the biggest ground game. But like we spoke about with Kadia at the top of the last episode, let's make this a fair fight. Let's make this about the issues. Sign up for the person you want to see on the ballot, not just the first person who shows up at your door. They'll need about 5% of the registered Democrats to get onto the ballot, which is almost 10,000 people. They'll need all the help they can get. So go contact your preferred candidate, get out there, and knock on a few doors. Hey, maybe there's a reason it's been unseasonably warm lately. Now, you might think this is the end of our Congressional Contender series. Not so. We have one final episode for you all. You might have been wondering, hey, what about immigration, women's rights, affordable housing, climate change, gun control, and on and on and on. Like DeSillis said, let's be real. This is a Staten Island seat, and a good chunk of progressive issues have been left out of the mix. To read between the lines, talk about what hasn't been said, and to close out our final Congressional Contenders episode, we're going to have a roundtable discussion with some guests we think you'll enjoy. So subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, follow us on Twitter at at RadioFreeBR. We just recently have been laying down a whole slew of fact checks on our not-so-golden state senator lately. And speaking of fact-checking, we will be dramatically expanding our currently thin show notes in the coming weeks for each candidate at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. We've also been updating our contacts page with links to local progressive organizations that come highly recommended if you want to meet up with some other local activists, plug into the activist community here in Bay Ridge, and just get stuff done. So, see you next time, and stay free, Bay Ridge. <laughs>